Hey Dan. And hey listeners, welcome to the 85th episode of The Goods, the film podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Teen Beach Movie and its sequel, Teen Beach 2. These are Disney Channel original movie musicals from 2013 and 2015. And subsequently we'll be discussing our top five summer movies. So, Brian... Yes. Another Disney Channel original movie. I, you know, we've watched a lot of them. Yeah, I believe, looking at the chart, this is our ninth and tenth that we've covered in depth. Oh, God. Uh, That, I suppose, hinges on whether High School Musical 3 counts as a Disney Channel original movie when it debuted in theaters. But, uh, right, right. If not, then eighth and ninth. I think it, I think it counts. It feels like one, yeah. And and we've at, we're at I'm going to pull up the number right now. How many things have we actually rated? It's like 117 or something. It's uh so we're more than five percent, less than ten percent of the things that we have discussed and rated on the goods. <laughs> Not on purpose, at least for me. Maybe more so for you. This has disproportionately become a Disney Channel original podcast. But you know that's okay. We we find our niches and we run with them. So. Yeah, there's a few recurring themes, and DCOMs is one of them. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so you had never seen these before, is that correct? That's right. These were new to me, except uh, at some point between our coverage of the High School Musical franchise and the Zombies franchise, you hit me with the link to Surf Surf Crazy. Mm, Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, that's the first song in the first movie. So both of these are musicals with fairly full soundtracks. And I kind of think of them as somewhat in the lineage of the high school musical series, both because they're fairly high budget musicals, but they're also pastiching a whole genre and translating it to a younger audience. The bizarre thing is that like, this is a far more obscure genre to pastiche This is basically a parody of the Beach Party movie series, Brian. Yeah, and it goes more into depth than I was expecting. I I thought it would just be a beach movie, beach party movie in the sense of, you know, towels and surfboards. But they actually have very specific references to films in the franchise. Yeah, I want to talk about what some of those are because it's (laughs) it's like pretty dedicated to that series. So. Yeah, it also, I think, owes a lot to the Gidget series, which I, I sh- we should have brought up in the Teen Beach. I don't think we did. There's a 1959 movie that I think originated the character. Yes, originated as a novel in 1957. The novel was adapted into a 1959 movie starring Sandra Dee. I think there's far more touchstones to Beach Party. I haven't actually seen Gidget. I've, I've read quite a bit about it because it was kind of a precursor to the beach party series but that one deals a lot with gender roles like directly in a way that the beach party very much has very little interest in dealing with gender roles in any sort of way i I still think gidget is kind of retrograde but it at least like considers them and that's a very prominent theme in the the teen beach movies too so definitely yeah so 
I, I say we we just dive into them. I got a lot of thoughts on these movies. I, I do before we before we dive into the recap. I wanted to shout out my little sister Maria. So she was the one who told me to go watch the Teen Beach movie. She said it was one of her favorite movies. She made an Instagram post about it, and like her, their friends were arguing about which songs they liked. And I was like, this was back in 2020 before we started the podcast, just as I was starting to get back into movies a little bit uh, during the pandemic. And I was like, oh, you know, what the heck? I like these these corny musicals. I put it on and it didn't click with me very much. So then I watched it again after the beach party episode that we did. And it made a lot more sense. And this was the third time that I watched it. So and just for reference, these movies came out in 2013 and 2015. That's right. Yeah. So I guess they've stuck around at least a little bit. But thanks, Maria, for inspiring me to to watch these movies a couple years ago, and, and they've been kind of stuck in my craw ever since. So so let's talk about what happens in these movies, these Disney Channel original movies. So Teen Beach movie opens with two characters, two teenagers, Brady, who is played by Ross Lynch, and Mac. And they are summer sweethearts on the beach surfing. They're having a great time. Perfect summer. The summer's maybe winding down a little bit but they're they're still making the most of it. Brady in particular is pretty much a surfer bro. He's got like the blonde mop. He doesn't talk in the bro slang, but like he's all about the surfing. And his favorite movie is a fictional movie called Wet Side Story, which I thought was just a terrific fake movie. Wet Side Story. It's very clearly a riff on Beach Party. So any thoughts on Wet Side Story, Brian, this this uh, fake movie that we kind of see at the beginning? Yeah, it's a good title because it's it's also about dueling gangs or dueling subcultures of surfers and bikers who both lay claim to this hangout spot. So obviously West Side Story being an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet was also about feuding groups. But this is where I was really surprised just how faithful this strange alternate version of beach party is because like beach party it has the bikers included which is something that going in i never would have expected to be so crucial an element to the franchise and it's like very specifically a nod to the same biker gang from the films because like that was the rats and this is the rodents and they're very similar characters like this this movie even has an eric von zipper analog yeah he's less old he's less old yes <laughs> he he's more of an appropriate age to be with the group right and he's played by a guy who looks exactly like tom cruise but a little skinnier and of course younger and he's and he's wearing really tight clothes you're right there's a lot of like really specific references like the way that they all have first names that are like kind of corny made up names like they, there's a whole thing where they intro, all introduce themselves and it's like sea cat rascal giggles and and they're like they're all names like that i feel like beach party had all those names too there's like a i don't know what they called it i can't remember what they called it in beach party but like a club it's like a tiki bar-esque club there's surf rock playing there and everybody's hanging out there and they're kind of feuding over the grounds a lot of really specific uh beach party references for sure so i i definitely dug it and so this movie is, it's Brady's favorite movie, but it's also the favorite movie of Mac's grandfather, who's here. And this is one of my biggest disappointments of the whole movie. This is just, this grandfather, 
you had a slam dunk cameo opportunity. I can't believe that they did not get Frankie Avalon to play this grandfather. He should have been Frankie Avalon. I feel like they had that penciled in and then something must not have worked out. Yeah. But I, I don't know for sure. He's the right age. Uh, he would have had the right vibe. He like looks kind of like Frankie Avalon. Major disappointment for me. I do know that on its original broadcast in 2013, this movie ended with a dedication to Annette Funicello. I don't know why that's not still on there, but apparently Annette Funicello passed away earlier in 2013. Right. However, this grandfather is actually in Rocky Horror Picture Show, the movie. I haven't actually seen it, but I know a couple goes to like a hotel or something. And the the man of that couple is the, the grandfather in this movie. Right. It's an actor named Barry Bostwick. Yeah. I did finally see Rocky Horror Picture Show at one point. But um, what I remember him from is back like around... 2000 or 2001 there was a pepsi commercial on tv and it was it's not pepsi it's pepsi twist with lemon the angle was that they had like a presenter this guy walks into like a restaurant and sees somebody sitting there with a can of pepsi but it's like some somebody with the last name barry and then she says well i'm not really so and so barry I'm Holly Berry, and she unzips her skin, and then on the inside, she's Holly Berry. And the guy who walked in is very into that. And then Holly Berry is like, well, this isn't actually Pepsi Twist. It's Diet Pepsi Twist. And I'm not Holly Berry. I'm Barry Bostwick. <laughs> and she unzips, and Barry Bostwick climbs out of Holly Berry's skin. And the guy is, like, very taken aback, obviously. And he says... Who is Barry Bostwick? And Barry Bostwick shrugs. <laughs> I guess he's just one of those guys who's just around. So that's what I always think of. In the rare moment that I hear Barry Bostwick's name, I think, who is Barry Bostwick? <laughs> Barry Bostwick is also like a very generic name. Like, I feel like you could hire a plumber named Barry Bostwick. That That wouldn't surprise me, you know. Anyways, deep analysis here from the good to film podcast. So yeah, they're, they're vibing this summer and their movie viewing is interrupted when Max aunt comes to town and she opens this beach shack door where they're watching the movie. It turns out that Mac has not told Brady that she needs to go to a fancy boarding school. She needs to cut her summer short, go to some elite East coast boarding school with her aunt. And the reason that she needs to do this is because her mom, who passed away, had a dream of Mac having this uh, life that her mom couldn't have. And so even though Mac feels connected to the beach and to this sort of life filled with joy and recreation, uh, she's feeling the pressure to go out to the school. And so that they're going to leave tomorrow. So I want to talk about the cast here a little bit because I already have some thoughts. I, I guess I already complained about the grandfather. So the two main leads here, again, are Ross Lynch. So he starred in a Disney Channel sitcom called Austin and Allie. And I think he's pretty good. He's no Zac Efron to me, but he's like, uh, he's the Pepsi twist uh, Zac Efron or the, the Diet <laughs> Pepsi version of Zac Efron. Who he reminds me of is Evan Peters 
from American Horror Story, the guy who always pops up as like the young protagonist dude. He played um he played Quicksilver in the X Men prequel movies. Um, he's he looks a lot like Evan Peters, and he's got kind of the same energy. The one thing I'll say about him that I really admire is he's a classic triple threat. He can sing, he can dance, and he can act, and he's good at all three of those things. It's like I feel like there are not too many people who build their careers on being triple threats in the 2010s and 2020s and like actually get some traction in movies. Like he, he's been in a couple things too since then. So I think that's kind of cool. So uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of enjoy him. Yeah. He gets his chance to shine. He, he does a lot of dancing and he does it well. Right. And then Maya Mitchell is the actress who plays Mac, which is short for Mackenzie, but everybody calls her Mac. And I was less impressed with her overall she gets written basically into this plot point where she feels compelled to go to this school and run away from the beach. And um, I think this is a really important thematic thread, but it basically means that Maya Mitchell kind of has to play a shrill wet blanket for most of the movie, which I came to appreciate her performance a little bit more once I kind of got the character a little bit more, because like the first time I watched it, I was like, oh yeah, I'm just here for the good vibes and she's not good vibes and that's not very fun. <laughs> and also it's it's not a very deep performance by her. I think she doesn't really know how to like carry the emotions particularly strongly. But as we see, we're going to get so high concept with this thing. The individual personalities take a back seat. Exactly. Yeah. And And what I was really thinking of the first time I saw this movie is that she's kind of tomboyish and that she's this surfer. Um, she's a brunette of approximately the same age. Uh, maybe a little bit older, but she made me think of... Oh, and the name is similar. So she made me think of Moe's, the other one-syllable M brunette tomboyish girl name character from a teen property from the late 2000s or early 2010s. And, and that is... Moe's is the co-star of Ned's Declassified, the Nickelodeon TV show. And I think she kind of looks like her too. So... The first time I saw this movie, every time they said Mac, I thought Moe's and, and I was thinking of her. And I'm a big fan of Moe's in that. And again, that just kind of exacerbated my initial issues here with Maya Mitchell and Mac. Although, I, again, I've come around on her a little bit. Anyways, as we might expect, this has kind of thrown a wrench in the relationship between Mac and Brady. And they more or less break up. It's like, like well, I guess we're going to have to stop seeing each other when you leave. It's like kind of a soft breakup. But they do sort of break up. And part of the problem is the next day, there's supposed to be this historically huge wave that they're all, all the surfers were going to catch. But Mac has to leave. But of course, she wakes up early and she grabs her grandfather's lucky surfboard. So one thing that this gets, that gets alluded to that I've seen referenced elsewhere is that old surfboards were like these huge, really heavy wood things, like mini boats, basically. And nowadays... They're made out of kind of like a foam plasticky material. They're much lighter. And so this is kind of like one of those huge old yacht style, massive surfboards that her grandfather had wood and like hand painted and polished and stuff. And it kind of glows. So we know it's going to get that Disney Channel magic here as it goes out. Yeah, it's got this like flower icon on it, this like wood inlaid tropical flower that seems to get a lot of important focus. Mm hmm. And so she goes out into the water and 
I got to say, it looks like Maya Mitchell is actually surfing in some of these shots, which really impressed me. I, I imagine some of the ones where they're zoomed out, it was a double. But I, I think she at least attempted to surf. I, I don't know. Either that or they had a double that looked a lot like her. Uh-huh. I think she was at least doing some of it. Um, because they make a point when they're like talking about the 60s film early on about how fake the surfing is. That nobody's actually surfing, they're just standing in front of a green screen. Uh, and so here, as counterpoint to that, they, they really tried to have quote-unquote reality in this first act of the film when we're in the quote-unquote real world. And that holds up to varying degrees at different points in the franchise, how real this real realm is. Definitely somewhat of a theme, too, and I think... Sometimes they fast and loose with it, and sometimes it's intentional. But we'll have to kind of deconstruct that as we go here, Brian. So she goes out surfing, but it turns out the waves are, are even bigger than expected, and they're kind of dangerous, and a storm is coming. So Brady happens to have a jet ski right there. He hops on the jet ski to go out and save her. But boom, the wave crashes down on them, and they are kind of submerged here. 15 minutes into the movie, and all of a sudden they... they their heads come out of the water, and it's not stormy anymore. It's sunny now. And all of a sudden, these faint tunes kind of drift towards them. They have found themselves not where they left, but they have entered the movie of Wet Side Story. They've gone into the screen. So, Brian, what are some of the lineage of films or stories where the characters go into a movie screen or otherwise interact with a fictional movie that, that you can call to mind. Hmm. One we watched in film class was called Sherlock Jr. with Buster Keaton, where he works as a projectionist and he like is a daydreamer and he imagines himself going into the movies. What else? I know I enjoy UHF where he lapses into these like Walter Mitty daydreams. So I guess Walter Mitty also a, a touch point. But in those, it's not like a specific film they're going into it's it's more like genres they're imagining their way into uh what what comes to mind for you my two touchstones for this are both the opposite the movie coming out and into the real world and that is purple rose of cairo which is a woody allen movie that is pretty terrific and the other one is last action hero the arnold schwarzenegger movie from 1993 Okay, I was just thinking that that one was about that. I haven't actually seen that. I think I saw the Nostalgia Critic review, mm -hmm. um, but I, I vaguely remember that. Yeah, that one's pretty good. I, I like that one. Those were the two ones that come to mind. I also think of Enchanted, the Disney movie, having some of that vibe. I guess it's like not a movie, but it's like what we perceive to be a movie world and the character comes into the real world. Right, I saw that in your notes, and definitely the second film, I, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, here they are, like, right in the movie. So, this being the third time I've seen the movie now, these opening 15 minutes to get us into the movie are pretty draggy to me. I, I really don't like Barry Bostwick's performance. We get a lot of shots of his face, and he always just looks like he smelled a really bad fart or something. Like, he, he's got a vaguely unpleasant expression that doesn't carry any meaning to me just like it's kind of necessary setup but the setup itself isn't all that interesting it kept seeming like he was supposed to be somebody 
he really seemed like he was supposed to be Frankie Avalon, or if not Frankie Avalon, like we were supposed to understand who he is. Right. But again, I just kept coming back to who is Barry Bostwick? Here is an idea. What if he were Dave Coulier <laughs> reprising his role from the 13th year? It would have worked better. He could have been snarky or something. I think that would have been a good casting. Be- better than Barry Bostwick. I'm sorry, but I'm not. I'm going to stop dwelling on it. It's just one little thing. So yeah, so now we're in Wet Side Story. And the movie really picks up from here because now we're kind of out of your generic decom reality and into the decom fantasy realm. And the first thing we get is this number called Surf Crazy. I, I'm going to drop a couple of bombshells on you here, Brian. So one is, I'm not joking. This might be my favorite movie soundtrack, period, in the world. I love Every single song in Teen Beach movie. They are all so good. (laughs) If we were to rank our top five movie soundtracks, this would be on there for me. I thought about that as a topic for this, but I thought it was too similar to our top five movie songs that we did just a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. I don't like they basically riff on a whole bunch of like 50s and 60s song styles. There's like some girl group in there. There's some surf rock for sure. There's some Beach Boys, which I guess is kind of like surf rock. There's like uh, Grease type show tunes. Just all of it's really fun. I ranked the the seven songs in the first movie. And I think I like if I were to give a is it good rating to the songs? I think I like all of them would be a six or higher and like five or six of them would be sevens or eights. Uh, I just think these these are like straight up bops. Every single one of these. <laughs> And some of them have really fun choreography, too. That's what got me was the choreography in both of these films was top notch. I wasn't sure where to sprinkle this in, but like I was just picturing because the background dancers even are so talented, like they must raise an army of these Disney kids. There's got to be like a huge hangar somewhere where they train these these people. And just, like, cull the ones that we don't see. They just, like, get it down to the best of the best. But there's, like, 50 people dancing in some of these numbers. And they're killing it. I know. it's it's The choreography is really fun. Um, the, the performers are all really talented. Great screen charisma. Lots of riffs on, like, vintage styles and stuff. There's someone who has the same outfit style as Candy from Beach Party. I'm sure you recognize that one. I did. And she does the same dance move, too. Yeah, where she, like, wiggles. Uh, I guess it was giggles. I kept thinking bubbles. But uh, she should have gotten a little more screen time. I hope she gets her own thing sometime. Oh, yeah, you liked her? Yeah. So this number, Surf Crazy, has steadily gone up my rankings of the song. It's just really catchy, and it's got, like, some counterpoint things going on where it's like do 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 yeah so i have this at number three of the seven songs that are on this soundtrack yeah so here's where it gets interesting is brady you know it's his favorite movie he knows these songs inside and out it's like if i were to hop into a goofy movie or that thing you do or something all of a sudden i'm like oh i know what happens right now i'm gonna i'm gonna do the thing i'm gonna sing along with them i'm gonna dance with them He's like getting into the numbers and dancing along with them. And like when they're doing their name call, he like inserts his name there. We get this uh, thing that ends up becoming kind of like a motif in the movie where they say, I'm Brady, I'm Mac, because they're all introducing themselves. But like 
Brady kind of like does it in time. And then there's like an awkward pause. And she says, uh, I'm Mac. And then I love it. Like in the background, you hear them shout cowabunga attack. I like that it rhymed with Mac. So it made me wonder, like, if you were to go watch the original as we see it at the beginning of the movie, like without them in it, Mac rhymes with cowabunga attack. But like, what would the song have been? Like, you presumably would have had something that rhymed with whoever the last character to say their name was when they're all introducing themselves. But Brady and Mac weren't there. So what were they going to say there, Brian? What were they going to say? I don't know. Right. I, I don't know. It's an important question. How malleable is this narrative? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, we'll talk more about that. For sure. Another interesting thing that I really noticed this third time is we see shots that are essentially identical to what we had seen when we had been seeing the movie on the TV screen. So that suggests that we, the audience, are also seeing Wet Side Story the way that Brady and Mac did. But like, we're also following Brady and Mac while they're in the movie. It's just a very trippy meta thing that I was like trying to parse out in my head. Like, how does this differ from what the original movie was? Like, where are where is this different and not different from the movie as it was in their world? I got more invested in this than I expected to. So I don't know. I thought it was pretty fun. Yeah, especially by the second one. It was straining my brain at points <laughs> trying to figure out, like, what is the authentic wet side story world and how many times has it been changed by how many travelers yeah exactly yeah what are the the, the realities because that's going to become a thing here so then we kind of hop ahead they go to big mama's like a little club where you can get drinks and you of the non-alcoholic variety and you can dance and the surf rock is playing and what what was it called in the teen beach or the beach party movie you're, you would remember better than I did. I watched two of the five, and I think you got all five and maybe some side series in there. And this is clearly inspired by whatever that club is that we see in Beach Party. And so they go into this club, and remember, we've met the surfers so far. So Surf Crazy is the first click. That click is good time surfers. The second click that will form the, the dueling sides of the wet side story are the bikers. So shortly after we get into this club, the bikers come in and we get this song called Cruisin' for a Bruisin' where we meet the different bikers, including the guy that looks kind of like Tom Cruise and and then also his sister who's named Leela. Where I'm going to talk about the other two leads here in a minute. But I don't want to exaggerate too much, Brian, but Cruising for a Bruising is the greatest accomplishment in the history of Western civilization. This is like a, a ridiculously catchy number. They have these really cool like intro where you meet the characters. They walk in, there's dry ice. Then they're dancing and they are just all over the place with these dance moves. Very fun. There's like four different classic rock styles in here. Rock and roll stuff going on. Brady, of course, jumps in. One thing I read is that initially Brady was actually not going to be in this song, but he was attending the rehearsals where they were learning the dance moves and singing along because he just really liked the number. And when the director saw that, and I think the director is also the choreographer, he was like, OK, I think Brady should be in this. And then he wrote him in to actually join in the number like he kind of did in the Surf Crazy one, too. And I think it makes sense. So he, he's here for everything. Yeah. So... <laughs> 
now that you say that um brady jumps in at the end i vaguely remember this one this one was not um civilization defining for me oh this one didn't pop off the screen for you oh man what i will say is that so the bikers all are in their black leather except Layla, so you know that she's going to be the one that's like the fracture point. She's yeah. going to be the one who's going to break away because she's wearing all pink leather. And it looks like the outfit that uh, Penelope Pitstop wears in uh, Wacky Racers. Nice. That's a good pull. I'm really surprised this one didn't hop off the screen for you, Brian, because another thing that this song really foregrounds for me is I'll just call it like the intense bisexual energy in this movie where I feel like basically any two characters could have started making out at any point, regardless of their orientation, and it would not have surprised me. Yeah, so we talked about the original Beach Party films being just incredibly horny. And like, maybe that's not a word that I want to drop when discussing a Disney Channel film, but I mean, yeah, there's there's vibes here. Right, I mean, you have, in the middle of this song, you have... Brady, who somehow has an electric guitar, and Butchie, so he's the guy who looks like Tom Cruise. He's the guy who's ahead of the the head of the bikers. They're like doing dueling guitar solos where they're both holding their guitars like their erections and making moan faces, staring at each other. And it's like man, G-rated, horny, like on the upper limit of it for me. It doesn't get as far as Beach Party does, which like has double entendres out the wazoo. Here it's all subtext but there is absolutely subtext for horniness here they're like gyrating and leather wrapped in leather ready to go is in the lyrics i mean yeah (laughs) so we talked about layla there's also a guy named tanner who's like the head surfer dude in the world of the film who looks like a human ken doll yeah and (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in watching clips back of the songs on YouTube subsequent to the film, uh, many commenters say things to the effect of, I can't believe that when I watched this originally, I bought that Tanner was straight. Oh, absolutely. He is just putting gay or bi vibes just off the charts this whole movie. He, he's just a perfectly waxed plastic man. Exactly. Yeah. And he's just got this like, I don't know. The way he carries himself, he's he doesn't seem thirsty for the women. He's got like a, I don't know, something, some weird energy about him for sure. And I don't want to dwell on this song too long. This is also the song where it occurred to me that I, I imagine that this guy, Jeffrey Hornaday, has not directed that many things. And I haven't looked this up to confirm, but it just, it really, man, imagine that you had this song but it was directed by Kenny Ortega, who like always knows exactly where to place a camera when you're doing these big scale numbers. Some of the numbers here are good, but some of them, you just get the sense that Jeffrey Hornaday was just spitballing it wherever he put the camera to like capture it. It's not like horrible because you always know what's going on, but I think the actual like camera placement and subsequent editing are not among the strongest parts of this. But you know what? It's a Disney Channel original movie. So, you know, you can't get your hopes too high on these things. So I looked up Jeffrey Hornaday. Apparently he was the choreographer on the like 1991 Dick Tracy movie and like briefly dated Madonna until she got with the director and star of that film, Warren Beatty. Interesting. Yeah, he he did like a 
old like Madonna music videos and stuff too. He's been around for sure. But yeah, it looks like he adapted dance routines from Flashdance for a Jennifer Lopez music video and yeah, so he's done a lot of stuff and I think he you're right, he's like a he's a real ass choreographer for sure cuz there's good dancing here, but I don't know how much direction he's actually done. Anyways, that's cruising for a bruising. We now have met our our leads. So let's talk about those leads. We talked a little bit about uh Tanner. So Gracie Gillum is her professional name now. Grace Phipps was what she was credited as playing Leela. I got some questions about Gracie Gillum. The first is, where did she come from? Yeah, okay. So she, well, first for age reference, she's two years younger than I am. And and she was like 20 or 21 when she made this film. She is just insanely beautiful. Definitely. She looks uncannily like Alison Brie. Oh, interesting. I can I can see that because she's got like the kind of round face and she's a brunette um, and kind of like the big expressive eyes. And she's like an insanely good singer, too. She can dance. And like every time she has a, a scene or a bit, she absolutely sells it. She has chemistry with every single person she needs to have chemistry with in the movie. Man, if I'm making a movie in 2022, I'm calling Gracie Gillum's agent and being like, hey, what's she up to these days? Does she want to be in something? I can find a place for her because she is so good in these movies. Mm -hmm. And she just she just really radiates. I don't know. She's just um, magnetic on screen, I think. And I feel like she doesn't even have enough stuff to do. Like I would have let her do everything in these movies. <laughs> so, yeah, after this the song where we, we meet these these two characters and Brady and Mac leave the club and they they start to realize that not only are they in a movie, but movie magic has actually started impacting them. So like movie things are happening to them. One is time jumps are happening. So it was day, but the next scene is at night and all of a sudden they blink and it went from day to night. And oh, there are new outfits too. And they're feeling forces that are like trying to get them to break out into song. They are like not just in the movie as people, but they're starting to like merge with the film and become part of the, which I thought was kind of fun. It's kind of clever. Yeah, I like it. It's like they're becoming part of the universe. They're starting to become subject to the, the physical laws of this new world. Exactly. Yeah. And they when they get this time hop, we're now like 20 minutes in a row with like three songs, which just after 15 minutes of no songs and then three songs in 20 minutes, the energy level is just going nuts because this third song here is Fallen For You, which is the, the Gracie Gillum feature number. So in the Wet Side Story, this is where Tanner and Leela would meet. But what happens here is they inadvertently mess up the plot of the movie. And so right when Tanner is supposed to meet Leela and they fall in love and that sets off the Wet Side Story, Brady's the one who grabs the falling Leela as she falls and Mac is the one who bumps into Tanner. And so now via like this movie version of imprinting on someone love at first sight, Leela has matched onto Brady and Tanner has la latched onto Mac. And so they've screwed up the story now. It's back to the future. Right, exactly. Uh, um, and it's kind of funny because now the other characters don't know what they should be doing. This was really interesting. Yeah, because you get the sense that if Mac is now in the Layla role and Brady is now in the Tanner role, 
that this would be like an acceptable path forward for the world. But they're resistant to it at first because they're like, no, we, we already got I already got a boyfriend. I already got a girlfriend. So we're not going to go off with these movie protagonists. But because they're just standing idly by now, every other character is like stuck in place. They just have to like, you know, the surf band is still up on the stage like vamping. Uh, but nobody knows what to do to go forward. Right. Because this is in, in Wet Side Story. What's supposed to happen is this is where, oh, a uh, biker chick and a surfer guy start to get together. And this causes the bikers and the surfers to have a dance off or something like that. But that plot point didn't happen. So now they don't really know what to do. So uh, just kind of a, a fun and clever idea here. And as Max says, we're changing the movie. So Fallen For You, by the way, I have it number four. So... I, of course, I had Cruising for a Bruising at number one, <laughs> Surf Crazy at number three, and Fallen For You at number four. Okay. Yeah, I liked this one. I thought it was well done. Definitely feels like it's of the time. Yeah. I mean, she can sing so well. And it's kind of, it's kind of like a girl group style number because she's got background singers. Who sings the Who sings the Christmas, Christmas song? What group is that? Is that the Ronettes or the... It's, it's a Ronette style. Okay. Yeah. So that one specifically is Darlene Love. So it's actually not a group. She just has background singers, but oh, okay, like that style. Yeah. Gradually, this begins to kind of foreground another really important theme of the movie, which is that we're seeing that this movie was made just like Beach Party with very traditional gender norms where the boys pursue the girls and the girls are like, you know, in Greece where they have on their poodle skirts and all that. And they're like, oh, I'll bake them a pie type stuff. And Mac is kind of challenging Leela to break out of that. And similarly, there's a little bit of Brady challenging Tanner to get a little bit more in touch with his sensitive side. Although that one, I didn't feel like Tanner needed much help getting in touch with his sensitive side. <laughs> I'm sorry if I'm playing up stereotypes here, but yeah. So now that Brady and, and Mac have realized that they have messed up the movie in a kind of only semi-coherent way they are like well what else happens in the movie that we have to be worried about and it turns out that there's a diabolical weather machine that these supervillains have to try and scare the teenagers off from the beach so these kind of these two campy supervillain scientisty characters who actually really do feel like they come out of the beach party movies like all the beach party movies have these crusty old villains trying to take over the beach and get the teenagers off the beach. So, Brian, I'm just really curious. What did you think of these uh, these villains here with the weather machine? Dr. Plasma or whatever his name is. So it was very abrupt, but you're right. It was a moment that stuck out to me as, wow, whoever put this film together was really up on their beach party lore. Yeah, and I think loves the beach party movies. Like, there's affection here. Uh-huh. Yeah, so it's like this British dude who's paying this mad scientist to make this laser beam that'll mess up the weather. But what took me out of it about these sequences with the villains is there's CGI here. Like, every time the camera zooms in on this big lighthouse that they're working in, it's almost Spy Kids level shots. Like, there's a shot where he's standing up on top of the lighthouse and it just looks so goofy and fake. And just when we've been made hyper aware of that the one world on the outside is supposed to be realistic and then this world is supposed to have 60s effects, it wouldn't have this 
weird holodeck floop zoom. Mm-hmm. It definitely like very much changes the visual profile and kind of feels out of place. Like later on, they start switching on the machine and it's like shooting these Adobe pack in effect lightning bolts. It doesn't feel 60s. Yeah. And it didn't feel 60s. Exactly. Yeah. I think this is the weakest portion of the movie. They don't really seem to know why they have this plot in there. Like, I almost feel like you don't even need it to tell the story they're trying to tell. They do get kind of halfway to an interesting idea, which is that the villains gradually become aware that they are in a movie. And so here's my proposed rewrite. Either cut them out or like have that be their, uh, what's the phrase, raison d'etre, reason for being, is have them learn right away that their character is in a movie and like trying to manipulate that against the character's the other characters to like take over the beach. I thought that would have been a fun twist. That was by far my favorite thing about them as well. At the end of the movie, they're discussing how they are movie characters. Like the, the scientist is talking to the rich guy and the rich guy says, we're just movie characters. This is all fake. And he reaches up and he pulls off his mustache and sees that it's a costume. He says, tell me more. <laughs> and I was really hoping we would get them to come back in the sequel. Up to that point, and this is one of the last things that happens in the movie, I didn't care. I didn't care about them. I didn't want to see any more of them than we had to. But with that, I thought they could have done all sorts of interesting things with them in the sequel. Yeah. Do that at the beginning of the movie. That would have been funny. Then they can do stuff like, oh, wait, what if we make the scene end? And then it cuts to black and prevents them, like the other characters, from stopping them. And just goofy things like that that lean more into the premise. Because I feel like they didn't know what to do with this. So that, that for me, is one of the bigger downsides of this movie. Is that this whole weather machine subplot. So the next plot beat in Wet Side Story, and therefore in our movie, is that there's a pajama party and then like a party at the club or something. And the goal is, they realize, they need to try to figure out how to get the characters... Tanner and Leela back together. So that's Brady and Max playing. They got to figure out how to get them back together, how to get the movie back on track so that for whatever reason, this storm, there's going to be a storm at the end of the movie. That's going to be their ticket to get back to the real world. They determine through movie logic, which makes sense because they're in a movie. But anyways, we get the the next number, which is kind of a cross cut between the uh, pajama party and then this party at the bike shop with the guys so the girls are at the the pajama party the guys are at the, the club and it's this song called like me and this is like 1a 1b i guess if if cruising for a bruising is number one this number is like really really catchy really fun editing and like costume changes and stuff what do you think of this number brian yeah i feel like this one gets to the crux of some of the themes because this is where mac and Brady are bringing their modern 2013 morals and they're they're trying to teach the uh, 60s people not to be regressive in their gender roles. This is the moment where, man, I got to say, like Mac and Brady might have the least chemistry out of any two characters in this movie. <laughs> Leela and Mac, the two the two girls of the couples, are like making goo goo eyes at each other and talking about how tight their clothes are with each other. And lots of me just thinking, hmm, what's what's going on here? <laughs> the chorus is 
boys like boys like girls like me. And just this kind of substitution of boys and girls unilaterally liking each other in the chorus also made me think that there's some intentionality of, of that placement. Well, I believe the full phrase is, I know what girls like, girls like, boys like me. So yes, you get girls like girls, but there's more at the start of the phrase. Yeah, that's true. And the song ends with Mac basically dressed as Sandy from the end of Greece when she gets her bad girl makeover and has like an all bl- black leather look to her. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of Greece in this movie too. Definitely, yeah. So uh, this time around, I actually was kind of struck by there is a pretty interesting balance here in the way that this movie is kind of tackling gender roles, but also simultaneously like the balance between facing reality versus living a fun, easy life, because it doesn't fully give into one of those two sides. It kind of does the the Lego movie thing where it's like, you can't have an extreme philosophy. You need to have balance in your life. You need to, you need to be okay being your own person, but also it's okay to be a girly girl and like girly things if you're a girl. But also, you don't need to do that. Do what you like. And then it's okay to live by the beach and surf and have fun. But that doesn't mean you don't have any ambitions in your life. And it really kind of bounces like a ping pong ball back and forth between these two viewpoints in a way that I actually found pretty compelling, I have to say. Yeah, actually, you're making me think a little better of it because I was feeling kind of thematic whiplash with the the back and forth trying to figure out how it was wanting me to feel but uh, yeah i think that's astute what i was wondering about was like this is clearly a tribute to a series from the 60s -hmm. and you got brady who's very like into it and fascinated with it and i was wondering what it was trying to say about the series because it's like are are they like terribly outdated things that should be distanced from or are they a beloved relic? And I don't know. I wasn't sure how it was interacting with those original texts. Well, I think the answer that Teen Beach Movie tries to give is both of those are okay. It can be a weird relic of the past that we kind of like, but also is not really representative of good gender norms. I, it, maybe it would have clicked a little more if it was like lasered in on one thing, but I kind of like how it... it plays around with these ideas without giving like a very direct answer. And I also like just that Brady is the one who's like really swept away with the romance and the musical stuff. Like that's another thing that feels like it's a little bit of a subversion. Mm -hmm. Normally it would be the girl who would do that. Oh, sorry. So I had like me at number two and there was one song I kind of glossed over where uh, Brady and Mac are trying to get Leela and Tanner back together. And that one is called meant to be, which gets reprised a couple of times. Uh huh. I actually really liked this song, Meant to Be. Yeah. It faded somewhat for me when they reprised it multiple times, not just in this film, but also in the sequel. Right. Um, it's not Someday from Zombies. Right. But I liked what they were doing with it in the first iteration because they keep like trying to pass the people off to each other. Yeah. So there was this fad of music called Baroque Rock from the the 60s, the mid 60s, and meant to be kind of plays off of that. You kind of have these chimey, echoey sounds in the background with lots of 
la 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 type things. Um, it's a good one, but I actually have it sixth out of seven songs here. I do like it though. Like I said, I like every single song on the soundtrack. I think it's good. Anyways, uh, things are starting to hit a breaking point here. Brady and Mac are like fully sucked into the movie just about. And at last, Mac, who has been really annoyed about all of the breaking out into song, finds herself forced into a musical number with this song, Can't Stop Singing, where it's just her singing about how she doesn't want to be singing in a musical. And I really, this is really funny. This, I, was, I saw this, I was like, okay, that's why they cast, casted Maya Mitchell, because it, this is a hard balance to pull off of doing all of these dancing and singing things and feeling and like acting like you genuinely don't want to. And it's kind of hard to imagine someone having done it better than Maya Mitchell did here, as much as I feel like she's just kind of average throughout the rest of the movie. So did you like this number, Can't Stop Singing? I did. I really like the choreography here, too. They're like reluctant. They're being dragged along. Exactly. Yeah. Through various set pieces, choreography. And so I had an idea at one point for a musical like this, where somebody like pierces the veil and Mm -hmm. is aware of what's happening. And mine was titled At the Drop of a Hat. And it didn't get very much beyond the title, but it, it would have been something like this. Okay, so yeah. I, I can appreciate it. It's a commitment to an idea, and I'm glad that they had this one in here because it's a little different from the other ones, which are basically classic pop tributes. This one actually kind of has a, a twist to it, which I, I like that one. But everything eventually clicks back into place because Leela and Tanner do end up falling in love. It, but it's not like the love at first sight type thing, but they actually find a little bit of a connection based on their shared interests. They both want to surf, for example. And they also are both like thinking about how they can break their rigid stereotypes. So I thought this was kind of a cool thing where it's like, on the one hand, it is the true love, whatever, but also there's it's not just because they fell into each other's arm. It's like they found each other in a more authentic way. Felt like a nice kind of support of the themes that was going on. But eventually, Brady and Mac get kidnapped. We get those supervillains again. And we're kind of back on track with the movie. So the bikers and surfers, like, all of a sudden, oh, what we do now is we go destroy the weather machine. So they run over to the weather machine. And as they are saved, and here comes the big storm, time to go back to reality, Leela gives Mac a necklace to remember their time together. And if you watch the scene and think they're not going to kiss, like, it just seems like what's going to happen right there. I don't know. But that's that's not what this movie is. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's not a queer awakening maybe it is under the surface but not on the surface so they do make it back to their reality and mac decides that she's gonna stay she's gonna stay with brady and what her mom would really want is not her to, to go to some place where she can't be herself but to be the best version of herself at the place where she really wants to be with the people she loves at the beach but we do see a little bit of the movie magic has carried over because just when it seems like Things are going to be back to normal. Everybody breaks out into song and dance. This number called Surf's Up, where everybody's singing together. Even Mac is intentionally in on it this time. I have this at the bottom of the list of the seven, but I still think it's a pretty catchy number with some fun choreography. And it's fun that Mac is actually into it now because you can see, oh, yeah, Maya Mitchell actually can sing and dance here. So, yeah. And the movie ends as we get this little stinger that seems to be sequel bait of all of the Wet Side Story crew showing up in the real world. So now they are the ones in the real world. This specific scene is essentially retconned right away into 
But that will be the theme of two of the characters from the movie coming into the real world. So that's how Teen Beach Movie from 2013 ends. Brian, any other thoughts on Teen Beach Movie here? Well, we just don't get a super specific explanation of how the portal works between the worlds. No. It's like uh, we get a lot of zoom ins on the flower on the magic surfboard. So you think that has to have something to do with it. Uh, But also there has to be a storm. And they come back with the storm, and at that point, she also has the, like, flower necklace from Layla. So, it's like, okay, well, that must be part of it, too. But who knows how this big group of characters came through. No no mention that they also had a storm or a magic surfboard. It just seems like the membrane is porous now. Yeah, and Teen Beach 2 is not going to make that any clearer spoiler, no. but... I'm I'm happy to just hand wave it away as movie magic, at least in the first one. Um, you know, it's all about the intersection of movie magic in the real world. That's fine. That's I don't need any more explanation of that. That never really bothered me. But you're right. We don't really get an explanation. It just happens. So, All right. Team Beach 2 came out two years later. Same cast, pretty much. Same four leads. They all look a little different. They did like different makeup and eyebrow work. So it's very noticeably they look different. But this movie, Teen Beach 2, opens with Mac and Brady at the end of the summer, basically looking back on how they met. So we get some lore changed and kind of retconned and character things added and stuff. So one is that the way that they actually met was from Wet Side Story, which definitely did not come up in the first movie. You know, it's Brady's favorite movie. Mac has no interest in it. But apparently now here in Teen Beach 2, we're going to say that that's how they met, which is going to become important at the ending. I like imagining that Brady just at no point in their relationship did he ever shut up about this film. <laughs> just talking about it non, literally how they met and watching it every day. That would be weird, man. Like, imagine. I don't know. I feel like I would be like, you need to chill out about the surfing, dude. <laughs> if you saw someone watching Beach Party every single day. Yeah. We see one more number ostensibly from Wet Side Story here, but it, it's clear from this first number, at least to me, the the songs are fine in Teen Beach 2. There's one or two I, I like quite a bit, but just we're not like if we were to make a top five soundtracks, Teen Beach 2 absolutely would not be on there. And for me, <laughs> that's a major appeal of the first movie. So like immediately if you're saying, hey, it's a huge downgrade on the soundtrack, Immediately, it's a huge downgrade on the movie for me, too. But this one does some other interesting stuff, and I still do like some of the, the songs here. But did you have any thoughts on, on the soundtrack, Brian? Well, I don't know if it's just that I watched this one. Like, I kind of watched the first one piecemeal, and then I had to crunch and get this one in. And I was just vibing with it. Oh, interesting. More. Uh, like, I maybe maybe I had just hit the point where I was in the mood now. Yeah, yeah. But something I thought was that it it felt like more of the production had like a higher budget behind it because the first one probably did well and, and so they're making this one and they can throw a little more money at it. And I was just consistently, uh, even more than the first film, impressed with the scale of the choreography that was going on. That I completely agree with. The production values, just like in High School Musical 2, there's a new outfit for Sharpay every other scene. Here we have so many outfits changes. 
right. lots of costume work, great like uh, props and stuff and, and all the numbers. So even if I didn't like the tunes themselves as much, I agree the the choreography and production game are about the same, if not even higher than, than the first one. Oh, and one thing I didn't like was uh, here at the very first number, um, Mac and Brady are dancing on the beach. And of course they got a wet side story projecting up on a sheet. But they do this thing where they're like dancing along with the characters on the movie screen, but they get up really close to the movie screen. They get in between the projector and the screen and they don't cast a shadow or mess up the projected image. And it looks real fake. <laughs> like they're after effectsing in this little marquee of the film footage. Right. Um, like they are not existing in the same world at this point. This is clearly a post-production element to get them this close to the screen. Uh, I, I would say just have them dance in front of the, like, you know, further from the screen than the projector <laughs> is. It wouldn't be that hard to change up the choreography just a little bit and make this look a little better. But Oh, well, yeah. I don't know. Everything like that in this movie, to some extent, you could say, hey, it's playing with the idea that this is only a partial reality that's influenced by movie stuff. But I feel like that's not the point of that type of effect here. It's just they didn't do it right. So, you know, whatever. They they just green screened it on. But yeah. One thing that happens early is Mac loses her necklace into the ocean, which is going to become symbolic because Mac is going to lose some of her zeal for wet side story and beach life very shortly because it's the first day of school. And Mac is apparently now like a geek straight a student she's vanessa hudgens from high school musical yeah i didn't read her that way in the first movie but it it's not implausible from what we knew of her and it kind of lines up with the whole she wants to do the boarding school kind of type thing um and then brady's basically a stoner to hear he's like doing goofy handshakes and what's up bro welcome back man did you vibe out this summer yeah dude He's getting a little bit more of that than he did in the first movie here. Uh, I like the idea that, you know, vacation is like a time of the year for her. And it's like you put on your beach self. Mm -hmm. But Brady is just that way all the time. Yeah. Well, it's very um, Greece mm -hmm. here because that's basically the plot of Greece is, yeah, they had a summer romance and then they end up at the same school and they are in totally different orbits and have to revert to their old selves is there a way they can reconcile that? So a lot of, a lot of grease going on here for sure. Uh, we meet some of their friends and some potential love triangle candidates. They're all fine. I didn't really care about them all that much, I, you know, cause I knew that this was all about our, our movie. We're going to get back to the movie characters at some point. Yeah. It's weird. Cause Mac has this friend in her ocean marine biologist club. This dude who it looks like is going to try to make a move on her, but then he deflects to this other friend of hers and then it never comes up again. Yeah, it seems like it's going to be a thing, but it ends up not really being a thing. And this dude looks like a model like he's he's handsome and he just doesn't look like someone who I would expect to see in a marine biology class. But I don't know, I guess that's uh <laughs> Par for the course in these Disney Channel movies. Um, mm -hmm. We we also learn more about Brady, and like over the course of two scenes, we learn that he's like a rock star with like full 
sound booth at his house and recording these like professional sounding rock songs. Oh, and he gets like this rock number that feels like a more traditional Disney Channel song that whereas in the first movie, everything was like a play on some 60s style. But also he's an inventor. He's got all these sketches of novelty surfboards that he wants to try to make and try out in the, the waves. So Brady's also got more going on here, too. Both of them have huge bedrooms, <laughs> just expansive. That's true. Yeah. Well, and, and Brady also seems to live on a beach shack, literally 30 feet from the tide. <laughs> yeah, he has like a bungalow that's open on all sides. Right. So he's kind of in his surf world and rock world. But Mac is like lasered in on the extracurriculars and she's like organizing fundraisers and dances and stuff. And also it's college app time and there's this big thing where Mac is like really excited about an oceanography program, but Brady doesn't even know what he wants to do in his future. And so they stand each other up. I think specifically Brady accidentally stands up Mac because he loses track of time and they realize that they basically have no shared values and they break up again. Meanwhile, boom, back in Wet Side Story. Okay, so now we're seeing the Wet Side Story movie again, but I don't know. They didn't know they're in a movie, but they're like still going through the beats of the movie. And it seems like they're doing it on loop or something because they remember Brady and Mac. But they're in an earlier thing in the movie, like when they do Fallen for you. So this is just very bizarre, changing the rules of the movie logic to me. It, what it actually really made me think of is that movie I mentioned, Purple Rose of Cairo. So if you see that... Uh, I recommend seeing that. Okay, yeah, I haven't heard of that one, so tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so this is a Woody Allen-directed movie. It doesn't star Woody Allen, though. Many Woody Allen movies star himself. This one does not. It stars Jeff Daniels, and I forget who the the woman star is, but basically the woman has this really crappy life, alcoholic husband, and the way she escapes is she goes to the movie, and she just watches a movie on loop. And when the movie comes to town, Purple Rose of Cairo, she sits in and she watches it, watches it all day. And eventually, Jeff Daniels, who's in the movie, like looks out at her and says from the movie screen, boy, you must really like this picture. You come see it every day. And he steps out of the screen, is the movie character out in the screen. But it's very clear that basically, like in this magic movie logic, the characters on the screen are essentially doing the movie on loop just over and over again because they start to do things slightly differently and they're like remembering what they're supposed to be doing now and stuff like as if they're actually acting it out but it just over and over again and Teen Beach 2 made me think of this because it seems like they know what they're supposed to do and they're kind of doing it over and over again but slight variations as they go so I don't know uh, in particular Leela is kind of questioning her role in the movie and does she have to do all the girly things just in the way that that was kind of raised and like uh, Mac planted the seed in her brain that you don't have to bake them a pie to win their heart over. You know, you don't have to subject yourself to 1960s gender norms. Yeah. So I took it to be that it must be looping in some sense, because otherwise it's just not really a world. Otherwise they exist for two hours, you know? Right. It's like there, there's no way for them to to develop in that case. Um 
So it's got to be like they experience it over and over in some regard. It's it's hard to say. It's complex. It's like time travel mixed with time loop mixed with, I, I don't know. It's like a little window into existence that has a beginning and an end point and, and what happens on either side of that. Right. And the curious thing is there's a whole dynamic here where characters don't know they're in a movie but they also sort of know how they should act as if they're like know they're on a script so you're right it's like some alternate version of reality that we don't quite understand what it's making me think of just now that we're talking did you watch any of the Westworld tv show Mm, yes i did it feels a lot like that and especially in the sense that like the main protagonist girl is kind of breaking out of it oh yeah yeah doesn't look like anything to me they they have this couple days loop that everybody all the robots reset to and all the human guests come in and they get to experience it for a little while and then go home and then all the robots reset again but some of them are starting to have uh what do they call them reveries they're getting sentience sentient but at some point in one of these loops or whatever, Leela finds the necklace in the ocean. So apparently it's transported back to movie world, the one that Mac dropped at the beginning. And she and Tanner go into the waves. And what do you know? They find themselves out in 2015 in the real world. And they still have kind of movie magic dust or whatever powers on them. One thing I appreciated is the movie leans into here are very specifically 2015 totems. This was the, the model of iPhone that people had. And this was the hairstyle that people had. And these were the gadgets that people had at the beach. And it already feels like a time capsule to some extent of that time. <laughs> the, the only time that really stuck out to me was at the beginning when they're like reminiscing about how Mac and Brady met. And she says, and you were sitting on the beach watching Wet Side Story on your tablet. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just, I guess I watch movies on my tablet. I watch this movie on, on my tablet. But that phrasing just sounds weird. Probably because they couldn't say iPad. But Exactly, yeah. On your non-specific technological tablets with a touchscreen and Wi-Fi. Yeah, that one. But that also reminds me in the first movie, the individual worst line in either of these movies is there's a really dumb joke about Angry Birds where, like, a guy is shooting a slingshot and... He's like, those birds are angry. And Brady's like, huh, what? Oh, <laughs> I don't like it when they do jokes like that. There's like a one in Moana about a tweet for Twitter, too, that always rubs me the wrong way when it comes. Well, to me, it was like an attempt at a, hey, Chuck, Chuck Berry, you know that sound you're looking for? It was like a time travel thing. Like, you know, it's it's going to be significant later. Well, that would make more sense, like, if Brady was the inventor of Angry Birds or something. Well, maybe now he will be. <laughs> maybe. Or maybe this guy in the movie will go on to be Angry, be the Angry Birds developer 50 years in the future. Yeah. And this is another moment where I really felt enchanted, because instead of Amy Adams marveling at, who is this weird-looking man in her princess voice? It's Leela in her 1960s dame voice. Who is, what is going on over here? They're fascinated with the, the modern world and all the things that we kind of take for granted. Eventually, Mac and Brady, who are kind of broken up, find Leela and Tanner. And we get a whole bunch of stuff where 
as like Leela and Tanner encounter people, they break into song and oh, they can't get wet. That's like a joke from the first movie. That's a way you know if you have movie magic is you can't get wet and, and things like that. But both Leela and Tanner are finding themselves kind of fond of this modern real world. But Leela in particular is like, oh, here girls can learn calculus. I really like calculus and I think I want to stay here type stuff. And flashback over to the wet side story. Now they're really thrown off because their leads are gone. Just like in the first movie, they didn't know what to do when things got messed up. Here, they're kind of like trying to figure out what to do. Characters are vanishing, like back to the future. And there's this bit where characters are like, well, something should be sung here, but I don't know what. And two different characters uh, that we kind of recognize as side characters go up and sing a version of the Fallen For You song, but like an upbeat dueling version of it, too. Yeah, I didn't really understand why characters were vanishing. I mean, this is their world. They, They belong here, ostensibly. But I mean, I guess it raises the stakes. They they need to have something to fix. I also kind of liked them like attempting to fill in the roles and taking the stage when the other characters would. It reminded me of in Inside Out when Joy is gone and then the other emotions have to like put up a facsimile. They have to like try to fill in that role. Oh, what would Joy say? And it's but because it's the other emotions doing it, it's it's twisted. Oh, yeah, yeah. I kind of see that. Yeah. I think the explanation for why they're disappearing is like. If there are no leads, then there's no purpose to the movie. Mm -hmm. And so no reason for these characters to exist because this movie wouldn't exist. And that is kind of like an important thing is that the things that the leads do can impact the movie world as we know it. Oh, yes, that's a good point. I hear you. But eventually the, the wet side story characters who are still around are like, we need to go find Leela and Tanner. And so they enter the real world and Leela and Tanner are like starting to lose their movie magic, starting to become more like real people. And eventually Mac and Brady reveal that, you know, the world that they know is actually a movie. And we get this little number where they talk about how movies are great and wouldn't it be great to be in a movie? But it's not until those other wet side story characters come back that Leela and Tanner realize that they need to go back to their movie. Otherwise wet side story and the characters will no longer exist. But for, for some reason after they do that, they all come back to basically convince Mac and Brady to get back together. And there is this big dance coming up. So now everybody's at a school dance and wet side story characters are vanishing by the scene. So it's kind of like a countdown timer. Can Mac and Brady get back together? Can the Whiteside Side Story characters make it back in time? And so we have this dance. And I got to say, watching this again, the first time since I've seen zo- zombies, this dance really felt like zombies to me. It's kind of got like black light going on. So the colors are a little distorted and purplish. And the song is much more like 2010s pop. And... I, I also think like it's not the bright, sunny colors of the wet side story. It's kind of the more garish colors of zombies. So any thoughts on this dance or, or anything here, Brian? This is the school dance that they've been like building to, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, what I noticed is, of course, it's under the sea themed. Oh, I didn't even think about that. You got to have every every school dance that comes at the climax of a movie that's... <laughs> 
Back to the Future adjacent. You got to yeah. have that C ending, even if even if Back to the Future is not involved at all, because we watched uh, Read It and Weep also ends with a Under the Sea school dance. Yeah. Well, and people are even disappearing here, like in the Polaroid. and Yeah, yeah. In the, yeah. Yeah, I mean, here it makes some sense, but it's like, theoretically, you could have a school dance themed to some other biome. Yeah. At the end of this dance, Mac and Brady do get back together. And and now, it, it at this point, all of the characters have disappeared except Leela and Tanner. So there's no, no storm or big waves going on for Leela and Tanner to get back to their world. And we know that they're about to vanish, which would poof the movie out from existence even. But Brady pulls out the surfboard that he's been inventing. Oh, that, that plot line comes back. And that it's like motorized. So they're able to get back out into the ocean, back into wet side story. But before they do this, Mac and Leela have a conversation. Again, this is like a conversation that a couple would have. Like I really felt like they were about to, you know, have a farewell kiss or something here. But one thing that I saw when I was reading a review of this movie is every main character has a gay moment here where like you see them look into the eyes of another person of their gender and it looks like they are about to start kissing. And I definitely got quite a bit of that, especially with with Mac and and Leela, but definitely some with Tanner and Brady, too. In in this one, Tanner is so wacky. I mean, in the first one, obviously, he existed by the odd rules of his world. Like, he had the sparkly teeth, and he was just always, like, inhumanly, perfectly quaffed. Um, but here, he's zany. Right. He's he's getting lots of broad gags. as he, Yeah. He's getting, like, kind of in, enchanted the, the prince who comes out. He's getting those types of gags. Mm-hmm. If you haven't seen Enchanted, you don't know what I'm talking about here, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I was thinking of Enchanted, especially when they first come into the world. There's like this number where they're telling all the high school cliques that they should hang out together instead of separate. And um, at first, all the cliques are like, what? No, that's weird. We don't do that. But then the movie magic takes over and they all it's like this whole group is now doing the reluctant choreography that then genuinely like bonds them together right it's like a little bit of a stick to the status quo type thing yeah definitely from from high school musical but also a little like the that's how you know number oh yeah yeah yeah. that giselle inspires in enchanted when they're going through central right. park so anyways this conversation that mac has with leela is hey you know i i know that you like asserting yourself and taking more agency of yourself here in the real world. You can do that in your movie too. You can change the way that the movie works. Leela's like, really? I can do that? I guess so. And so then we get this foreboding bit of dialogue. Well, if they vanish and the movie goes away, then would it mean that we never would have met? How would that even work? Definitely like some time travel conundrum stuff going on here. And so it seems like it worked because they get them back into the wave, back into the movie, out of the modern world, real world, back into wet side story world. But then when Brady comes out of the water, mission complete, he just walks right past Mac as if they have not met each other. So all of a sudden, like, what's going on here? And then 
we get to this fundraiser. Now, when we had learned about this fundraiser that Mac was planning earlier, she had explicitly said, I'm not making it wet side story themed. People don't like old 60s movies the way that we do. But then now it is a beach movie theme. You're like, wait a second, what's going on here? This is the opposite of what we expect. And then at the, the desk where Brady's signing in, Brady and Mac have a conversation, but they clearly don't know each other. And so now we learn that this looks like it's Wet Side Story, but it's actually different. Leela has made herself kind of like this feminist star of a variation on Wet Side Story. And the movie is now called Leela, Queen of the Beach. And because Wet Side Story didn't exist in its form, I guess Brady didn't latch onto it. And so therefore, when he would have been showing it when uh, Mac met him, he wasn't doing that. So he and Mac never met at the beginning of the summer. So now they have ever, never actually met each other, never actually uh, had a romance together. And so by the movie characters changing their perspective, the real world has changed, too. It's like a ripple effect. This is wild, Brian. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about this. So I'll just go down my list. First off, how did Layla change the movie? Because we have seen that it kind of exists on like a track. And if it deviates too far from that, everybody's left kind of wondering, oh, what do we do? I guess maybe the leads have more power to steer it than the other characters do. But yeah, it's kind of interesting. And like, what specifically did she change? I guess we, we see we see some of the new film. But yeah, I'm curious if this is the movie now that came out in the 60s, what else changed in society in the years since? Right. It's like slight variation on the old movie, but somehow like the energy, I don't know, maybe throughout the loops, like each loop maybe Leela asserted a little bit more of herself in it or something. The very nature of the film changed such that in the past when the movie was filmed, whoever wrote it was like, yeah, th this should be named after Leela or something like, I don't know. It doesn't get a lot of explanation. It's very elliptical. It, it's not explained and it's just so fascinating. Well, because if the world of the movie is malleable, then could any of the characters change it? And the whole history of the world with it and if so is the timeline constantly changing is the world history changing every two hours every time the movie loops i feel like it has reached a state of stasis okay when she went back to the movie maybe there were some loops where got kind of messed up and disjointed and then all of a sudden they realized the movie kind of locked into place, the new version of the movie with Leela's new philosophy. Okay. And so then the reality now that we're seeing for, for Mac and Brady is, is that one, but you're right. It does. It raises a lot of questions that, that don't get clearly answered. Then here's another question. Does every work of fiction operate this way? Man, I don't know. Is there a world of characters living their lives that then ripples out into the, human world when they decide to make a change or is this like a specific mirror dimension just this is the one you know <laughs> i don't know why would it be that movie who knows that reminds me of a futurama episode where they see a parallel universe and it's all the characters except they're wearing cowboy hats <laughs> and fry says wow it's incredible to think that there's an infinite number of universes and the professor says no just those two. 
<laughs> Just us on Cowboy Hat World. <laughs> Another thing that happens here, further kind of raising questions about the basic way that this world operates and what are the rules here, is that now it seems like the movie and the real world are also kind of connected. Somebody throws something to the screen, but it like comes out of the screen and hits Mac in the real world. There's also a merging of the two worlds to some extent, because also all of a sudden, all the characters in the real world are getting up and participating in the, the dance number. It's a new dance number called That's How We Do. And I think this is my favorite number from the sequel. It's kind of a play on the closing number from Greece, the nonsense Ramalama ding dong song. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a, a different version of that here. Right. This number is huge. And it just goes on and on. It's like six minutes long on YouTube. But yeah, the choreography is incredible. It's really fun. Yeah. Really, really good. And there's a whole bunch of people involved. And it's nighttime at the drive-in. And there's this bit where Brady jumps up in the bed of a pickup truck. And then a bunch of other dudes too, do too. And they're doing tap dancing in the pickup beds. And... It's really cool. I mean, the, it's just sprawling. Obviously, a lot of work and time and talent and money went into all of this. The one down note is that multiple people get up on top of a truck in front of the screen and they're doing that goofy effect again. They're right up pressed against the bedsheet again <laughs> and not casting any shadow. In this case, that doesn't bother me because it feels like that could be intentional, the way that the worlds merge. Mm -hmm. But the fact that it's just been a consistent, poorly executed effect makes me think that maybe they just didn't do it. You know, they didn't do it right. But yeah. And then the movie, the movie kind of ends here with Brady and Mac kind of detecting some sort of previous connection, maybe. But they get kind of their fresh start. And the last lines are, I'm Mac, I'm Brady, which had been the motif from the first movie, which I thought was a really cute and clever way to end the movie. So let me throw my rewrite at you, Brian. Okay. Here's the different thing. So this movie, Teen Beach 2, was released, had its debut on the Disney Channel the same day that the Supreme Court legalized gay marriage to the day. So perhaps if the writers had known that that was going to happen, what they would have done and might have been more interesting is instead of Tanner and Leela going back into the movie have Tanner and Brady go back into the movie. We know Brady loves the, the movie. We know Leela loves the real world. And then you could have like a sort of end of the Legend of Korra type thing where it's basically suggested that the two female leads start a romance after the end of the movie. Then you could have Mac and Leela having this connection at the end of the movie. Boom. That's my, my rewrite. And I feel like thematically that for as weird and interesting as the ending we actually get is I feel like it doesn't really do much to enhance the themes other than really emphasize that we control our own destinies. But the whole thing where it like alters other things and other people is just kind of like a clever elliptical thing. I don't know if it really teases out what Teen Beach movie at its core is, but I don't know. That's interesting. In some ways, it does feel like that could be what it's building toward. I, I do kind of like the idea of a human deciding to live in the movie i mean they did that in um enchanted yeah tanner would dig that he could go surfing every day 
I mean, I guess they did both. They they swapped, just like you're suggesting. Right. I guess that would be even more like Enchanted, wouldn't it? So that's how Teen Beach 2 ends. And, you know, it's been seven years. I don't think there's going to be a, a third one. I don't even know what you would do in a third one. But very interesting duology here, the Teen Beach movie and Teen Beach 2. They got to do Back to the Teen Beach. Oh, yeah. like When everybody's old in <laughs> 2040. I'd watch it, man. <laughs> Speaking of uh, third parts, you texted me earlier that uh, Zombies 3 release date, uh, just over a month from now, right? Yep, July 15th, so maybe we'll finally hit you with that uh, update episode. So it's it's been a long road, and we still have a top five to go, Brian. Let's hit our good things, not so good things, and then we can hop into our is it good section. So I, I kind of hit most of mine, but Brian, were there, there any other... Uh, Good things or not so good things that you wanted to call out one more time? Hmm. I guess a good thing for me is that this exists. I don't know who was clamoring for a tribute to the Beach Party franchise among the typical Disney Channel demographic. Uh, Who was deep into the Annette lore (laughs) among the people watching? What even was on 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 2013 Disney Channel. You, you mentioned uh, what was the the show? Oh, Austin and Allie. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how much overlap there is between those fandoms. Not many. I mean, if you look at even at Letterbox, which is kind of people who are more into film history than your average Disney Channel viewer, the Beach Party movies rank among the least watched movies that we have talked about in our tenure. <laughs> Because you can order them by popularity. So it's not like, I mean, people might get the idea because it's been parodied so many times. But it's not like these are classics that are, the boys are spinning up on on Friday night, you know? Right. I I only know it through a backdoor, through Pee-wee's Christmas special. Right. Yeah. A couple quick thoughts on my side. Teen Beach, the first one, Teen Beach movie. Honestly, I really like the way that it deconstructs the movie it almost seems like it's kind of deconstructing the idea of a Disney Channel original movie. I know that it's not exactly that because it's a beach movie. That's not really what Disney Channel does. But like the way that it kind of shows that the seams on like a way that a, a cheesy movie, like the kind that Disney Channel shows works. It really feels like it's engaging with its format in a really thoughtful way that you wouldn't expect out of something like that. I mean, it's not too aggressive about it, but... I think it's kind of smart. I actually think it is kind of a clever movie. So I like that. And I I do think I like the beach party things and the music maybe more or at least up there with any of the other beach party movies. It really does feel like a proper beach party movie with this additional meta layer on top of it. Last thing being that Gracie Gillum gets a lot more time, a lot more stuff to do in Team Beach 2. And I think that's that's awesome. But yeah, those are the extent of my thoughts. Uh, anything else, or do you, are you ready to hop into Is It Good? Yeah, I'd, I'd say let's uh, make our judgment. So, listeners, Is It Good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, Tour de Good, which is an eight out of eight. So, Brian, you're our guest. Why don't you give us just Teen Beach Movie? Is Teen Beach Movie good? Hmm. I've been waffling a little bit. You've done a really good job selling it. And there's definitely a lot to think about with these movies. It's surprisingly high concept. 
Um, I think I'm right on the line of a four and a five. Uh, as Dan just said, I think we uh, we've got an eight point scale. I'm gonna fall just into the camp of five. So yes, a good movie. I once again, I'm just struck that this got made. It is kind of a a complicated love letter to the series improves on it in some ways deconstructs it in some ways is critical of it in some ways and yeah a pretty solid soundtrack i wasn't as enamored with it as you are but i mean it hard to knock a musical too hard i i would have liked to have seen more with the villain uh since we did end up exploring this world again right so sorry did you land on goodish or good good five okay five so I can confidently, comfortably say with my most recent watch that this is my favorite Disney Channel original movie. It has officially passed High School Musical for me. So my head and my heart are saying slightly different ratings. I'm just going to be kind of silly with it and go with what my heart says. I'm going to give this movie an exceptionally good Teen Beach movie. I'm going to give a seven. It's got flaws and it still has some of the Disney Channel stuff with it, especially the first 15 minutes and that and, and the plot thread with the mustache twirling scientist villains that doesn't quite know what it wants to do. But man, the soundtrack, everything it's that's it's doing that's kind of on a meta scale and how that all kind of aligns up with the themes of the movie and just the weird energy that the movie has. I really like it. And it's funny because I, you know, every time I watch a movie, I give it a score on the is it good scale. This was the third time I watched it. The first time I watched it, I hadn't seen any of the Beach Party movies. I gave it a three, a not, not good. The second time I watched it, I gave it a good. And I don't know what it is, but it's really swept me away. <laughs> the more that I've thought about it and kind of lived in this world and this soundtrack and, and revisited it. I'm going to give it a, a light, exceptionally good, Brian. Maybe over the top, but that's how I'm feeling right now. Cool. So how about Teen Beach 2, Brian? Teen Beach 2, I think I'm firmly in four territory. Good-ish. And I did go and look back at all our previous DCOM musical rankings, thinking about how would this compare, say, to the, the various zombies installments in the high school musicals. And, and so I, I think this is a, a safe four. It's it's pretty good. I really like the various musical numbers in this. One we didn't talk about at all is there's this song. I thought of it as being called Play the Scene. I think YouTube says it's called something else. But it's the song where Brady and Mac are trying to convince Layla and Tanner that it's better to live in a movie world. And so it's all these movie cliches. But the various scenes are being like constructed around them as they sing. And a lot of it is these single extended takes. It does cut into close-ups a few times, and I wish it didn't. I wish the whole thing was just one long shot. And I wonder how much of it was successfully one shot. But there's mimes that pass through and cowboys that ride by on like an artificial horse. And there's this whole pirate ship that gets put together behind them. And these pirates swing in on ropes. And it plays a not-quite-Pirates-of-the-Caribbean leitmotif. Right, yeah. Yeah, I thought this was really cool. Yeah, this is a cool number. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. It, it felt a little out of the genre of what we'd seen before. 
Um, I agree with that too. But I is a little out of place. But yeah, I I liked it though, and it was people cool. uh, once again just everybody showing their chops. Yeah, for sure. So I am right on the line of a goodish and a good. I am fond enough with the ambitious ending. I, I it's a it's a Disney Channel movie, and it's like doing this really ambitious stuff with I don't know having us deal with really bittersweet emotions. How many Disney Channel movies like challenge us to deal with bittersweet emotions, Brian? Not too many of them. And even if they do, they end happy. You know, like it all resolves into something happy. Whereas this is like very mixed. So I, I'm going to say that this is just barely a good movie because I really do. I still enjoy it. It's not as good as the first, but it's right on the fence for me. So uh, I'm going to I'm just going to go ahead and, and give it a five out of eight. A good on the strength of lots of Gracie Gillum, Leela material, she's just stealing the show and that that ending. And I really like the that's how we do number that we talked about that kind of wraps up the movie that that elevates it for me. Five out of eight for me. There you go. Teen Beach one and Teen Beach two. A lot of thoughts. Glad we got to talk through it. And now on to our top five, Brian, because we do have a thematically linked top five. Join us for our follow up episode. Top five summer movies coming soon.